0: This is Leaked Lunch with Isabella Kaminska, the the fly-on-the-wall podcast that brings you to the dining table. In this week's edition, I sit down with author and economist George Magnus for a spot of Chinese food in Baker Street. George was previously the chief economist of Swiss Bank UBS. He is also the author of two must-read economic megatrend books, 2018's Red Flags and The Age of Aging, which was published in 2008. We discussed the new Cold War, the outlook for the Chinese economy, and what life is like after banking. The interview was recorded in Royal China Restaurant on July 6th, and the bill came to £94.81. For the sake of listeners, we are in Royal China on Baker Street, which is, I think, probably the flagship Chinese restaurant in... um in London, like it's the, it's the go-to one that everyone says is the best,
1: right? Um not sure, but um, yeah, I'll tell you a word for it. Oh, so you,
0: you're not, because <laughs> as a China uh, expert, I thought you would be uh, the authority on Chinese restaurants.
1: I, I'm an authority on one Chinese restaurant in Foot Street, in the depths okay. of Soho. okay. Uh, okay. Where, um, at least before the pandemic, um, a group of sort of China watchers used to meet uh, monthly. Um, just to debate what was the latest news coming out of China. Um, it all felt rather seedy, actually, because it was a sort of this upstairs room in a very kind of uh, offbeat Chinese restaurant. But the food was excellent, and the discussion was always pretty good. We've met a couple of times since, but, um, yeah. But I, I didn't know this restaurant. So. You yeah, know,
0: this is so all the kind of, like, um, China, ex- well, actual uh, people i know who come from china or hong kong they always recommend this restaurant so it's become a chain so there's quite there's like one in there's a few of them but anyway it specializes in dim sum
2: okay
0: i feel like chinese food is very particular to um family traditions like everyone has a different way of ordering chinese food some people just go for like platters and one i mean very rarely do people just Order
1: a single course for themselves. Yeah, I, my sort of induction into Chinese food was probably when I, the first time I was, I went to San Francisco actually. I, I befriended a, a, a guy who was working for the company I was working with, a Chinese fellow, um, or Chinese American, uh, and his family had a Chinese restaurant. and Lunching or dining with them at this place was an absolutely incredible experience because they would just look at the menu uh, and then they just would tell the waiters to bring about you know 25 different dishes huge family uh the, like what are those kind of round uh, things called on the tables that they you know where the dishes go round and round yeah 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 <laughs> um yeah so it is a big family kind of thing yes yeah.
0: exactly right we so, shall have to
1: make do and compensate so
0: george what well, where
1: how long since you left UBS now? Um, so I, I sort of, I drifted out of UBS rather yes. than left. So I, I went to a sort of a three-day week contract uh, after the financial crisis, oh,
2: yeah.
1: um, which never was three days a week, of course. Um, but then uh, probably from about 2012, 2013, um, I kind of focused a lot started focusing a lot on china um and uh, then in 2016 we cut the cord in fact they just renewed my contract um and um in a sort of i don't know it was probably in like september and in october the then head of global research called me back in for a a personal meeting to tell me the contract had been terminated so uh (laughs) that was rather a kind of a, a not an uncommon way for investment banks to terminate uh, employees but um but that was in 2016 and um yeah was uh i've been there for 22 years
0: and your big, you, your age of aging book came out when that was that was my earlier? first
1: book that, was, yeah. that came out in 2008 yeah, right, uh, at the uh, yeah
0: and now you've you've just in 2018 you put out your china book i did
1: uh, so red flags why Seize china is in jeopardy came out in 2018 then um, very they-
0: on the like timing wise i, I think into tw- if we cast our minds back to 2018 before covid i think it was people were s- it was still an era of pre-red flags. I think we were still, it was a completely different environment to what we are now. So you uh, total, were quite ahead of the curve. Yeah,
1: totally different. So the, the you know, the, the trade war as we exactly. used to know it had only just begun, really. Right. Um, and I think there was still quite a lot of, you know, good, positive feeling about China. and You know. Uh, it's going to become the biggest economy in the world. You know, it's sort of a wonderful place to do business. Um, engagement was no, no nobody really thought about disengagement. Um, uh, the Hong
0: Kong protests had already been a thing.
1: Yeah, so that happened. That really kicked off in 2019.
0: Okay. So, so it was a little before bit, your book, a little so bit so later. Yeah, so your book was just before that.
1: Although. The, the my publishers actually commit oh, they commissioned sort of two additional chapters and brought out a paperback in 2019 ah. with a new forward and an afterward uh, and the af- afterword actually was probably i don't know it was, uh, it was about sort of 25 35 pages so even in that year there was a huge amount to add and actually China really has been a sort of gift that's just kept on giving. I mean, through the pandemic and up to and including today as we sit here, exactly. it's like almost every day, every month, there's something.
0: It's been a new fascinating story. And so, what, I mean, in terms of your career, though, when did you really start beginning to specialize in Chinese affairs?
1: Well, um, so I, the first time I went there was in 1994. Uh, something like that, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean it was a very, very different place. I mean, I think in 1990-ish or well, in the early 1990s, China's income per head was only about you know sort of 600, 700 dollars. I'm probably off base with that where, number.
0: Where base. did you go in '94? Shanghai
1: to, uh, Beijing. To, to Beijing and Shanghai. So I was doing basically pitching as a sort of a, a sell-side economist. Yeah. Uh, with uh, salespeople, foreign exchange products to um, to SAFE, the State Administration Foreign Exchange. So we were basically selling, you know, products, financial products to the the reserve managers of China.
0: And What was that like? That must have been amazing.
1: Hard, uh, because obviously, you know, there were. Uh, Always, kind of language problems because either you know we were speaking too quickly or we had to rely on translators, um, which meant that every meeting was twice as long as you wanted it to be. Um, uh, but it, they, they were relatively simple. I mean, uh, FX in those days was pretty uncomplicated.
0: Hello, you know, um, yeah. Can we order some drinks and food, thing. Okay. Um, what would you like
1: to drink? Um, I'll have uh, I'll have a beer actually. Xin jiao,
0: yeah. Maybe mm. a
1: sparkling water,
0: some Chinese tea. And should we order, some, can we order some food for you now as well? Yeah. Okay. So I um, like Chinese tea. It wakes me up, especially if we've had a um, um, a bit of a, a drink the night before. Um, but um, yeah, the tzu, just work me back to that era, that time frame, ninety four, right? So, in terms of the economic picture in China, it was firmly in the emerging camp. But in terms of the FX, had they started like like playing around with with uh, the exchange rate pegging yet, or what was
1: um, the situation? So that the the big uh, exchange rate reform where they aligned multiple exchange rates to create a, a more simplified system i mean they weren't i mean obviously the yuan is still you know semi-pegged right so it's not free it, it's more flexible but it's not free um but that all of those reforms happened in the early 90s and in those days i mean i can't remember you know what the size of china's reserves were but they were you know, a long long way away from the three trillion four trillion that eventually they grew to in the following 10 or 15 years. Thank you. you. Um, uh, But, um, yeah, so uh, they were probably measured in hundreds of millions of dollars rather than anything else. Um, I
0: remember when I was at Reuters on the graduate trainee scheme, and I was there circa 2003, yes we are, Um, could we get, selection of dimsums. Dim no problem. You got one more coming? Uh, uh, no, just the okay, two. No problem. Anything? Uh, yes, we ordered already a, um, a sparkling water and some Chinese tea. Yeah. And then in terms of the dimsums, can we get... So you don't do prawns, do you? No. So um, can we get... But well, porks all right? Yeah. Perfect. Can we get some Shanghai... Yes, some Yes. Um, can we get... Um, the chili pork. Chili pork, I've done Yeah. Um, the, um, where was it? The, um,
1: the, was it? The, um, the Vietnamese spring rolls? Oh, yes. The Vietnamese spring rolls?
0: Yeah. This one, the honey roast pork. Sounds and good. Honey roast pork on front. Yeah. Um, and for me, Sesame corn toast. The sesame corn oh. toast? Yeah. yeah. I'm I'm afraid I have to go with corn, but you don't. No problem. Uh, should we get some special fried rice? Okay. Or the Vietnamese spin loaves contain prone, yeah? Uh, no should prawn. we take the one with no prone? No, this for one, me. The, the fried rice. Vietnamese spin loaves in order. Yeah. yeah. contain prone. Oh,
1: does it? Yeah. Ah.
0: Do you have any fried.
1: You ones? want that or not? Yeah. Okay. we okay. got vegetarian spin loaves, no prone.
0: Oh, vegetarian spring rolls. Okay. Well? Yeah. Yeah. From inside. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. And then um, this this one has prawn. Is it? We can it? do without prawn. Yeah. Let's do special hard mm-hmm. with without
2: prawn.
0: Okay. No problem. Thank you. And um, vegetables and rice. Sounds great. Thank you. you very much. Very good. Cheers. Well, oh, my tea. Oh, my tea is here now. Excellent. So, no, what I was going to say is when I was at Reuters, I think that must have been about 2003, and we were learning, because I was a graduate t- trainee, and we were learning about, you know, the state of the world, we were all ignorant about what I was, anyway. And it was about then that it was like, it was still kind of whispered, it's like, oh, did you know that China is buying all these treasuries? And it was, this was in 2003, it was still considered quite, quite a novelty, um, then it became
1: a huge thing yeah so i mean i think it was relatively i mean looking back i mean i think it was pretty unsophisticated at the time i mean i think you know probably all they were buying in those days were very simple you know treasury bills short maturities um and you know obviously warburgs who i was working with at the time were in competition you know with all the other big u.s and uh few well, US banks and a few UK banks other banks
0: um,
1: yeah I mean it,
0: and now it, here we are and with now how, he, how much was the latest well,
1: they, kind they, of, they had a financial crisis in 2015-16 where they lost about a trillion dollars worth of reserves mm. um, so they're still you know it's kind of plus or minus three point something trillion 3.1 3.2 trillion dollars Um, I mean, there's a kind of little cottage industry now that's actually involved in trying to find out, you know, how the reserves are uh, being invested. Um, Actually, it's not a little cottage, it's quite a big cottage industry. Um, And and actually, why the reserves are what they are, because uh, evidently there is still quite a lot of capital outflow from China. um, And it may be that the reserves are being accumulated by state banks to hide them from public uh, scrutiny
2: um,
1: so yeah so yeah it's obviously a sea change from where it was you know 20 years ago
0: yeah. and um, I guess so your book came out in 2018 18 19, and yeah. she came like the when, king when did he appoint himself dictator no sorry <laughs> that's, that's a
1: a loaded, That's a total a mistake. Uh, well, he, he became leader oh. in the end of 2012.
0: And just, then when, did, when was that rule change that allowed him to stay on perpetually? Oh, did so
1: that moved? was uh, the 18th Party Conference uh, in 2018, or the National People's Congress in 2018. So... Um, so yeah, roughly so, when your book came out? Yes, yeah. So, I mean, the, obviously the... the um, I'm pretty sure the manuscript had already gone to the publisher. I'm not quite sure if I changed it in time. It possibly did. Um, but, yeah, this was, um, I mean, in a way, a lot was made of this this change. I mean, Xi Jinping's power uh, derives not from the fact that he's president. In fact, uh, I think probably in China they very rarely use the term president. Yeah. Um, but his power derives from the fact that he is the general secretary of the Communist Party right. and the head of the military commission. So even if he wasn't president, he would still be a very powerful person. Um, so the president, the abandonment of presidential term limits um, is, um, yeah, I mean, we, we sometimes make a lot more of it than it actually means. But certainly it does mean, uh, because there's this big 20th. Congress a party Congress later this year it certainly does mean that he can provided his health allows and his enemies allow he he could remain president Xi Jinping of China for for life.
0: And um, and of course that has rat- that I believe at the time rattled people quite a lot in the market. But as someone who is obviously very okay with what's going on, do you think what you just discussed, like the, the, these kind of uh, nuances about how the leadership works? Do you think the market in general under, like, I get the impression that the market doesn't appreciate those nuances at all? Um, but w- what's your thought?
1: Yeah, I think um, when you say. The market? You mean the Chinese market or the at kind of the global best, financial market? I think markets?
0: the global financial yeah. market. Like there are so many sort of, especially on Twitter, which you're on, obviously. Uh, what's your handle again?
1: Uh, at uh, George Magnus One.
0: You got must, number one. There must so be another.
1: Good. There must be another one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you didn't get the original. No, the original was already taken, but you're number <laughs> okay. one, so that's still that's kind of better. Um, but you are active on Twitter, and obviously um, everyone you know who is on Twitter knows that. Everyone on Twitter thinks they know everything. <laughs> most, of course. And they don't. But um, your perception from like engaging in that space, do you think that a lot of people are commenting about China without the kind of background details and does that really matter?
1: I, I think a lot of people don't really understand the political context mm. in which and, and I think you know, it's a sort of a lifelong learning experience yeah. actually. So I mean you know, with respect, you know, there are you know, eminent sinologists, yes. um, you know, who who also claim to be still learning, even mm-hmm. having, you know, studied China and Chinese Communist Party for the last, you know, I don't know, thirty or forty years. But I, I think. Um, who,
0: who do you rate in the commentary sector on China? Like, who do you think it's worth
1: listening to? I think, uh, I mean, I think Mike Pattis who's a, mm. a, a former derivatives trader, actually at a U.S. investment bank, I'm not quite. sure I can't remember which one he was at actually, but he's um, he teaches at the uh, Peking uh, University, uh, finance classes. And
0: he's co- co-written a book with he, my former colleague Matt, Matt Klein. Klein.
1: Yeah, I think that I mean that was a, a, a wonderful book, wonderfully timed, uh, well worth a read. Trade wars, yes. class wars, um, but but Mike actually is probably I think one of the most astute, you know, contemporary China economy watchers actually. And Matt knows a thing or two too. So. so
0: you you um, you bought into their thesis about the um, the idea of the trade wars being
1: class wars. Uh, definitely, you know, and I think they 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 kind of wrote about it and, and kind of presented the, the narrative and the story. I think that's what I like about um, you know now, now. I'm sort of not at the coalface of banking anymore. I like listening to stories and narratives, I think that's really what gives economics a kind of a value, um, you know, whether it's China or whether it's global inflation or, you know, supply chains or whatever it happens to be, um, the, the kind of the, the, the regurgitation of, you know, incessant amounts of data actually is pretty boring. Um, I mean, it's, maybe it's, it's an input that a lot of people have to be familiar with and, and, and follow, but actually, I think the interest really is uh, is the context, right? Is how you tell the story, and I think that trade wars, the trade wars book that um, that uh, Mike and, and Matt wrote, uh, I mean, does you know present a very novel approach to why what's well, mercantilism and you know trade surpluses and deficits and why they exist and so the so what, political context,
0: what yeah. was the like yes. what was the one thing or not one thing like what was the biggest sort of thing that you might have underappreciated until you read the book like or, or was it pretty much aligned with your thinking as it is
1: well I think um, it, it did align with my thinking it's probably much much better presented than I would have been able to um, like uh, yeah.
0: Sorry, I'm being very rude and didn't of
1: even short short offer. Short. Yeah. Um, but I think um, I, th- I like the way they also sort of they made it a kind of a global It wasn't only about yeah. China. It was also about Germany. It was also about kind of global imbalances. You know, I mean, we seem to have been talking about global imbalances forever. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, I think. Even at the time of, you know, the lead up to the financial crisis in 2008, there's a lot of talk about global imbalances, but actually I think this contextualises it. You know, why do they exist? How are they? How do they persevere? Um, and what should countries be doing to try to, you know, collaborate to, to dispose of them? So I, I kind of like that whole approach, really. You know, so
0: how do you think that uh, framing now... How, how is that impacted by the new paradigm post Ukraine and post COVID, um, and the whole deglobalization trend? A, do you think deglobalization is now an irreversible force? I mean, what's your stance on that? Is it a real thing? And if it is, how is how is it going to impact China in the, in the years to come?
1: Yeah. So I think that. Um I mean, some of this stuff was going on even before the invasion of Ukraine.
0: Um,
1: And a lot of, a number of firms in China, I think, were, I mean, foreign firms in China, so American, British, European, Japanese, Korean, I think were probably kind of pondering just the change in the business environment, change in the political environment, the politicization of regulation. yeah uh, I mean these things, but you know for a lot of companies, the market in China, you know the opportunity to earn revenues to finance r and d and you know distributions to shareholders and so on. I mean these things have always been pretty important uh, without question. But I think that um, this kind of Rubicon was crossed actually on the twenty fourth of February.
0: Yes. Um,
1: and i think that um, although w- there
0: were hints like you say like there was the dual circulation co- comments which were a hint at what was do you think the dual circulation stuff was a, a hint of things to come or uh, well, but maybe explain to uh listeners what because she came out with this idea that from now i think oh gosh i I should have done my research. Oh, thank you. Saved by the food arrival. Um, <laughs> Only next, briefly. Thank you. Can um, you Thank you. Um, so, yeah, he came out with this idea that um, the problem with having mics on the table is that it limits the amount of space for the food. Uh, <laughs> But as far as I understand, it was this like decoupling, uncoupling—the Great Decoupling, or whatever you want to call it—had already begun, and she wanted to create, stimulate internal demand, right? And so he was foreseeing this dual circulation system. Um, I quite like the way he explains it, actually. Am yeah. I? Am I? I'm probably doing a terrible injustice to what he meant. Well,
1: it's it's um, it's more complicated.
0: No, yeah of course <laughs> um, I've so, been dazzled by
1: the food so the, 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 <laughs> um, whilst you I'm, I'm just going to explain this whilst you yes, uh, well,
0: sample, diet, sample diet, our indul- diet indulging in some rice <laughs> um,
1: so the, the Chinese development model has been uh, faltering actually for quite some time so if you think back to even long Several years before Xi Jinping came to power, so in 2007 and 2010, 2011, the then economic kind of guru or leader of China, was a chap called Wen Jiabao, who was the, the premier of China, complained that China's economy was unbalanced, uncoordinated, unsustainable, and unsomething else, which I can't remember. Um, so they've been. Toying with this idea about how do we change uh, our development. Thank you. I think these are your oh, yes, four are sesame Thank you very much. You um, and um, so uh, there have been a number of um, initiatives, um, and and the dual circulation strategy was, is just one of them,
0: in right. which
1: what the government wants to try to do the idea is that there's internal circulation and there's external circulation. So external circulation is about the trade situation and making sure that Chinese companies do very well. Firms in China export a lot of goods to the rest of the world. And the internal circulation is really about domestic demand, domestic production, Mm -hmm. mainly production. Um, And this is kind of related also to um, a series of other... um, policies which the Chinese government is pursuing about technological independence and self-reliance in leading technologies like electric vehicles, quantum computing, semiconductors, and so on. So domestic circulation, on the face of it, looks like uh, a strategy or a campaign to try to get the economy to walk better on two legs, domestic demand and external demand. But, But actually, there is an inconsistency between the two. Because if you want your exports to do really well, they have to be competitive, which means you have to contain your wage costs. Yeah. If you want your domestic demand to do better, you have to raise wage costs. So it's a clash. So it's a clash. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it's not really a kind of a viable solution, um, but it's um, but it is a it is a campaign which the government you know is propagating, and it's it's it's. it's it's one of several ways in which I think the government is trying to articulate we need to change, but we don't think we we don't, know we don't really know how to do it. Or it's politically too difficult, mm. which I think is the, the main thing. So I
0: think that's what, I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but the impression I get from hedges is that the main challenge that the Chinese government yet has is sort of not at, Inadvertently, kind of setting fire to a tinderbox of like the population becoming outraged about XYZ. They have to tread very carefully in terms of not like encouraging any dis- 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 disaffection towards the government. And so, any sort of sudden economic demise or like increase in costs or um, anything that rocks the status quo. Is potentially destabilizing.
1: Um, It's quite interesting because the and this is we were talking before about markets and about whether you know markets really have integrated the idea of what China is. I don't think that I don't think it has. They have, maybe they don't have reason to yet. But. China has a Leninist government, and Leninist governments are totally obsessed about supply. Um, They don't think about demand management and demand in the way that most Western or, or, what should we say, liberal-leaning democracies do. Um, And as I think um, a number of economists have kind of made clear, you know, the share of uh, consumption in GDP in China is quite low it's about um, well it, it sort of troughed at about 33 34 percent um in the pandemic and then kind of came back again to around 37 or 38 percent, which is where it had been in 2007. Um, so this is incredibly low by even the standards of countries like germany and japan which are very mercantilist type of economies and nations very sort of oriented towards you know state um, support and nurturing of, of trade and exports. Um, so, if China really wants to change its development model and go to the next level, they have to do things like open up the service producing industries. They have to raise the consumption share of GDP. They have to become less reliant on investment in infrastructure and and uh, uh, local government um, uh, investment initiatives. Um, I mean, it's a sort of root and branch reform in the way that the economy grows, which is which is why I think that there is kind of potentially a, a kind of a problem, a political problem, which is that you know they they want to change, they know the model has to change, but I don't think they have the political. Capacity to be able to change without surrendering the Communist Party's prime mission, which is to rule unchallenged.
0: Yeah, and that is that—that that is that balancing act that ah. they have to um, manage. from questions. Yeah <laughs> no, this is this is all fascinating. So ba- basically, the dual circulation thing is the kind of rhetoric they've applied to trying to deal with these um, somewhat conflicting challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, of course, COVID hit. And did you expect the reaction that they did? Like, do, did mm. you, um, what's your view on um, the original reaction now that the most recent Shanghai mega lockdowns that followed? Yeah.
1: So, I mean, this has obviously been um, a huge kind of source of tension and rift uh, between China and the rest of the world, or much of the rest of the world. Um, So I think the if you think back to sort of late 2019 early two thousand and twenty, when the you know first discovery of of, uh, COVID was suppressed. I mean, I I don't think looking back with hindsight, I don't think anybody was going to be surprised by that. That's precisely what happened with SARS as well. Um, But the zero covid policy obviously um has been was for china a, a source of, of of great sort of you know peacock style kind of boasting look how well we've managed to suppress this um and you in the west you know you completely screwed up lots of people died and so on um, so i mean think that's all kind of well understood but um i you know i don't think we can um dispute really that uh, as far as the numbers go if we believe, them,
0: if we believe that, them that
1: that China obviously has managed to get away with far fewer fatalities than uh, than we have
0: experienced what, what, what is your yeah. view on the statistical um, like how how how, how um, to what degree can we trust the numbers out of China? And not just the uh, COVID numbers, but also some of the other statistics. I mean, there are some who obviously don't trust them at all.
1: But, um, well, I think the... I, I don't... <clears throat> I, I can't... You know, I'm not a public health expert, so I, I can't really judge whether the uh, the COVID fatality numbers and others are, are accurate, accurate. I mean, people whose research and follow... Um, seem to think there are questions about uh, some of the numbers that we were getting out of wuhan in 2020
2: Um,
1: but um, in terms of the sort of overall quality of of economic statistics you get in china i mean they, they produce copious numbers of statistics as you'd imagine and many of them are perfectly fine or fine enough Uh, but some of them particularly the kind of the the ones that most people follow like gdp are are clearly not good you know they're manicured um, there's no volatility or uh, cyclicality in the data um, and you can't really tell uh, even now even now and in fact i would say especially now because um we're waiting probably sometime in August, uh, maybe early September, the the data on China's second quarter GDP. So this is the time when Shanghai locked down, part, large parts of Beijing locked down, other cities locked down, um, and um, you know, a lot of the kind of the anecdotal numbers that people looked at were absolutely dreadful, but the question is, how, to what extent will the government be willing to acknowledge it, you know, in terms of its official greed, we'll, we'll see.
0: So were you expecting China to um, join forces, not join forces, but like support Russia to the degree it did? And and, and tell? you wrote a a blog recently about the West of underestimating how, um, you know, the degree to which China might go all in with Russia. And also, obviously the Olympics were in February. At the time, I think nobody... I mean, the consensus in the market was very much that there wouldn't be an attack, I would say. I don't think, even though there was the data coming. But the relationship between Russia and China was still a bit ambivalent until we got to the... um, to the Olympics, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And there was obviously, I think now we know that there was some sort of agreement where Russia sort of said, we'll wait until that's done before we attack. To what degree does that now... Um, I mean, could China come back from that? Um, does
1: I it don't...
0: want to come back from that? Mm. Will it even be forgiven? <laughs> I will.
1: I don't think... Um... I, I don't think I can see a way back. I mean, the um, when they when Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin <coughs> had their um, whatever it was thirty-eighth meeting just before the Beijing Olympics, on, um, they issued a, something like a, I don't know a five thousand word statement. Which was a sort of a a mark of their what they call their deep friendship, and um, um, and it was really it was quite unusual. Um, I mean, lots of people try to find templates. We all do this because we want to know what are the historical parallels and has this happened before and what happened last time and so on. But the only parallel I can really think of um, that contextualises the Sino-Russian agreement uh, is, it basically came to me when I was reading, and I'm still reading a tome by um, a historian called Richard Overy called Blood and Ruins, which is a sort of an extraordinary uh, narrative about the Second World War, which which he claims started in 1914 and ended in the 1960s. But that's another story. Um, But he described it as basically the last Imperial War in which Germany, Italy, and Japan had different reasons, but all tried to change the world order. They would not accept the lessons of the Treaty of Versailles. And And I think this is what China and Russia basically now see their mission as, which is to change the world order. Uh, Well, you
0: think they've um, they've, um, they've called it wrong, right? They were expecting us to be weaker or more obliging to their power play than we've than we were that's
1: that was the thrust of your argument yeah so i i think it's it well i mean you have to take a slightly longer view um i mean i think for the moment i think things have obviously not worked out according to plan right so the you know spirited resistance in ukraine you know it turns out not to be a cliche but actually it's about people who really care about their country being invaded um best laid plans of the Russian military uh, have been exposed as being rather sham. Um, And uh, and the response of the Western or liberal leaning democracies in terms of applying sanctions is certainly something which took us by surprise and would have taken them by surprise, too. So I think for China, there are lots of kind of interesting lessons to be drawn from this, but I don't think they will be detracted at all uh, from seeing the current time as an opportunity to exploit what they see as the terminal decline of the United States and the Western world.
0: How do you think they're going to do that now? What's your... Mm-hmm. Like, how how will that ex- exploitation happen? When you see it in the internal... We're, we're not as exposed to the internal propaganda in China, but you certainly see massive... Chinese footprint online with this kind of continuous sort of well, I guess
2: that
0: continuous sort of uh, pro-China PR um, you know these uh, commentators you don't know where the, who they are, where they are they pop up everywhere and they always give you the positive spin on any story mm. um, meanwhile there's a sort of general um, encouragement of Western self-loathing um so there's the propaganda side of it but what do you think strategically in terms of the pro- like you know, maybe in terms of corporations that's a good way to uh, think of it so like tesla on one hand there's this mercantile Mac- 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 like ongoing perspective but yet tesla's expanding in china but then they're making it really difficult for china for tesla to expand in china um but the market is still alluring, so they maintain their presence. Um, but at the same time, domestic copycats are coming up everywhere. So is it a is it still the sort of situation where they want to lure Western companies because it gives it a good insight into how to replicate a lot of um, the technologies internally? Do they still need to do that? Or will they eventually just freeze out Western companies completely?
1: Yeah, uh, so mm, this is kind of an interesting question because um certainly probably because of my kind of finance sector um you know origins as it were <laughs> um i've been kind of particularly interested in the, sit- the position that companies like um we allowed to mention names um companies like bridgewater goldman's jp morgan uh, aberdeen or whatever however you pronounce their name nowadays I'm kind interested in their kind of public postures, really, because the red carpet has been laid out for yes. financial firms in China. Um, I mean, interestingly, since February, um, they've gone quite quiet about uh, a lot of what they're doing in China. But China, I think, is kind of conflicted itself, right? I mean, so they they talk a lot about self-reliance, which is... Chinese for decoupling, really. They want to de-Americanize their own supply chains in much the same way as the Americans want to de-Sinify theirs. Um, but You're they, but
0: they, yeah, yeah uh,
1: but they are still quite dependent on foreign technology, foreign know-how, right? So that. In finance, for example, they don't need to be told anything about retail banking. They do that fine. You know, no, and no foreign bank is going to basically make a mark in that sector. But they do recognize that Western firms are pretty good at asset management, wealth management, investment banking operations. These are areas which Chinese banks are typically not very good at. Why, learning. So why do you think they're still like learning?
0: And is it just because? it's a completely different sort of way uh, management approach or are uh, there intrinsic sort of frictions in the system in China that mean they can't emulate uh, Western practices in, in banking or, uh, I, or asset management yeah, specifically. that's a good question I mean, o- obviously there's, there's the capital controls which, which limit their of course their capacity to, to, like, to, be, to take risks yeah. to some degree
1: I think the, I mean, part of it is a lack of sophistication. Mm. So most Chinese middle-class households, uh, I mean, one imagines that you know, if you're really rich and you know top of the party and so on, you've already got your money snatched overseas anyway, and you've got financial advisors and what have you. But for most Chinese people, the the, there's only two ways of holding wealth, which is cash in the bank and property. Um, And so developing an asset management business where, um, because some of their pension system is now becoming a little bit more kind of defined contribution as well. Um,
0: That's interesting. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's small beer, really. But it's beginning to shift because, obviously, they've got a a rapidly aging population, fastest aging population on the planet, actually. Um, And the pension system needs uh, bolstering and strengthening
0: because th- this is an important point point, I think it's often overlooked and this is what Monty Pettis also talks about is that despite it being a communist country the social safety net is still very like not there right mm-hmm. so in an ironic kind of you know there was a great documentary on Netflix it was actually produced by the Ob- Obamas I don't know if you watched it it was called American Factory did you, did you no. watch it? No. It was all about like Chinese management coming to buy out this um oh yes thank you um this old I think it was Detroit or anyway it was one of the Rust Belt cities Um, a former like car manufacturing plant or whatever and they were going to make windscreens Chinese made windscreens anyway I found it it was a while ago now but it was amazing to see how like the supposedly communist country was really anti-unions very much you know very exploitative to its staff um you know like the american workers were like we can't handle like at first they were very happy that there was a company about to like create jobs and they were like we don't want these sorts of jobs they're really poor quality jobs and then they were trying to start a union and the chinese company hired like union busting um consultants um and then they had like a like a um, exchange where some of the workers went to china and it was very eye-opening to me in terms of how what China preaches, in the factory at least, is, is, it's kind of Victorian almost. It's, it's not, it's obviously exploitative of the worker, but that's the, sort of, that's the sort of standard that they would apply to their assets in, um, in America, which obviously won't, like, there, w- there would be resistance. We have unions, we have, you know, minimum standards. Um, so it seemed inconsistent, and also a role reversal.
1: It is bizarre that the um,
0: capitalistic system is actually defending its employees um, better than the Chinese one.
1: It is bizarre, um, and um, yeah, you know, it's absolutely correct to point out. You know that. Um, I mean, obviously there are trades union in China, but they're all state party organisations. Um, you more know, political than they are. You, you have you know there are. I mean, there's a, 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 a non-government organisation in uh, Hong Kong called the China Labour Bulletin
2: yeah.
1: that basically monitors labour relations in China and puts out regular sort of data on strikes and you know strike issues, unpaid wages, um, uh, you know uh, people being mistreated and so on. And it it is—I'm not sure about—maybe it is a little bit Victorian. It's certainly not what you would expect in a country that professes to practice socialism.
0: Exactly. That's the funny thing. And
1: uh, and although the social security system and um, welfare system, you know, is um, quite broad in terms of its coverage,
2: um,
1: it's not generous at all. And you know, there are still, you know. Something like 200, 250 million migrant workers, who do not have urban household registration, which means that they are not eligible for free healthcare, schooling. Um, it and makes America unemployment. actually sound functional
0: on that front. Well, to some degree. there's
1: this kind of there's this kind of aversion in China. Um, I mean, it seems like an aversion to adopting the kind of welfare policies that we think are like normal or natural um, and some of it is financial right? because in China the central government doesn't really do any of these things these are all services public services which are provided by local and provincial governments who happen now to be desperately short of money um, even to the point where lots of civil servants aren't being paid um or um they're just having dire straits trying to raise new revenues because they're quite reliant on getting transfers <coughs> excuse me that's the um, uh, chili sauce oh yeah um, oh,
0: but that one is very nice very chilly very, but very nice yeah
1: um but they get but they get transfers from beijing and they're also very dependent on property uh, land revenues yes. which are in the toilet basically because of the slump in the property market yeah. so in how, a long se- the stump, how, how long has the slump been going
0: on I haven't been tracking it uh, it,
1: re- the, it really began to go pear shaped um, I would say middle of last year with uh, Evergrande yeah. the second biggest property developer and obviously since then it's just been like snowballing through the real estate sector
0: yeah. how how exposed is the west to that
1: well, if you, um, you know, if you're a copper miner uh, or a, you know, commodity producer that's been reliant on what has been probably the most important sector in the global economy, which is Chinese real estate, um, you're going to know all about it. Uh, so, so the the initial uh, kind of impact of the decline in um, the Chinese property market is going to be on those companies and industries that have been fueling construction or helping to facilitate the construction industry in China. Uh, but actually, of course, there are secondary effects too because if households become more cautious in terms of their spending because of worries about house prices or you know, mortgage obligations are too demanding and so on, then, of course, Chinese demand suffers as well. So we all get to feel it. One way or the other, and it, this is not just a kind of a t- temporary uh, kind of blip, because the you know, Chinese property has been through decades without any material downturn, and um, and the demographics are poor. The indebtedness of the sector is terribly high.
0: Um, the
1: old methods of stimulating the economy through property just aren't available anymore.
0: Do you still get those ghost towns? So something went down the wrong way. Do you still get those ghost towns where they overdevelop them to in demand?
1: There isn't still the focus on that that there used to be, largely because with time, um, some of these so ghost towns basically have filled up uh, with um, you know people.
0: They did, they did end up yeah. but
1: nevertheless the vacancy rate in Chinese real estate across the nation is still around 20% um, and of course in some parts of the country it's much higher than that some parts it's much lower but, uh, but there are several uh, places where vacancy rates are very high and of course in commercial real estate that, uh, the bottom is its actually now beginning to fall out of that as well
0: yeah who is um, teaching English in Sh- uh, Shanghai? And um, what I find very interesting is that it's how different his account of China is to say the now Western perspective that China is under the thumb of a potentially despotic leader that there is um, a power grab, a land grab, the Belt and Road is an imperialistic kind of um, expansionist um, strategy in, in itself, um, and social credit systems, the abuse of the Uyghurs, you know, so it's like the Western perspective is obviously, it's pretty bad, right? He, he I mean. You know, I don't know, I haven't been there, but he he finds an excuse for almost everything. And he says that net-net, his life in Shanghai is so much better than the UK, uh, that there isn't the sort of social um, oppression that uh, we perceive there to be on the ground there, and... Um, I think the social credit system hasn't yet been properly rolled out in Shanghai, but um, or maybe I'm wrong, but last I looked it wasn't. Um, but I was quite surprised by how there is, there's almost like a, a complete sort of, it's a mirror perspective, like if you're not, you know, the West, the Western narrative is very much I've got to be aware of China. They're going to roll out the yuan. It's going to kind of um, oppress everybody. What do you think? What uh, do you think about all these tales? Well, uh,
1: I mean, I've got a particular view about the yuan or you know the internationalisation of the renminbi. We can perhaps come on to that, but I, I obviously can't really comment about your friend's kind of observations. I mean, there's no thing, there's no question that you know that China in in, in Chinese big cities like Shanghai. Actually, there is no Chinese big city like Shanghai. Uh, so I, I think you get probably a quite kind of um, slightly biased view of what life is like. You know, yeah. income per head in Shanghai. <clears throat> Is probably as high as it is in Portugal, so the quality of life on average is pretty good. And, um, and anybody you know that's been to you know Beijing, Shanghai, Chengdu, you know, Chongqing, and you know, Shenzhen, and so on, the normal uh, kind of tourist uh, or places where people go, I mean. It, it feels like it's a modern country that's catching up very quickly and I, I don't think anybody's trying to take away from China its accomplishments but at the same time I think where Western skepticism I don't think and I think it's where if Western skepticism is you know the economy isn't working I mean the answer is it kind of is working it's, it's running into a lot of roadblocks which I think are going to become increasingly pressing during the next decade Um, but I think the issue really is about what China's ambition is
2: Yes. Uh, so
1: well I think I mean the, the, the stated ambition is to be a you know kind of a prosperous society by 2035 which is halfway between the centenary of the Communist Party and the centenary of the founding of the People's Republic, and then by the middle of the century to basically uh, prevail as a, a make the, the global power, par excellence. I mean, I think under Xi Jinping's rhetoric, I think they really think that by the middle of the century, China will be number one in almost every respect, or in many respects. So, lots of questions about that. One, you know, is that realistic? Basically, based on what we think, the way that we think we can extrapolate China's economy, I don't think it is realistic. Oh
0: interesting.
1: And number two is, what are the implications for the rest of the world? What happens if, say, the World Trade Organization, the IMF, the World Bank, um, other institutions become reshaped and reformed To function the way that people think the World Health Organization and um, maybe the Human Rights Commission are being changed from the inside, massaged, yeah, Yeah. um, by by China's influence. Because quite clearly, you know, we are, I mean, people may try to sort of brush this under the carpet, but, you know, we are involved in an adversarial struggle over values, beliefs, standards. And um, we just have different ways of looking at the world, you know.
0: It's very different to the Kissinger years. It is. And I think that is the big shock that has happened post-COVID. And for me, it was quite sudden because I, I, I you know, I'm I watch China, but I'm not as specialised in it as some. Um, and I, I think it, it was such a forceful about turn in terms of China was our friend now it's not. Nobody unless you're watching the space, it, it really happened quite suddenly, and it, it went from, like, kind of trade war side of things. Do you think it would have happened regardless of Trump? Or did Trump just, like, accelerate things?
1: I, yes, I think he did. Um, I mean, I think even during the Obama administrations, I mean, there were uh, people who were kind of rather sceptical about what they thought was sort of the soft side of Obama's foreign policy in this respect. Um, so maybe maybe it was inevitable because, because, one, because Xi Jinping was in power and he clearly wanted to give the Communist Party a boot up the backside, um, believing that in the previous decade it had been decadent corrupt um, and allowed discipline to slip so he came into office with a quite clearly ideological agenda which people didn't want to acknowledge and the second thing is, <clears throat> is that you know china's economic heft is unique uh, russia was never like that uh, and won't be um, and so we worried about russia Still worry about Russia uh, as sort of a, a big commodity producing economy with nuclear weapons. Um, but it was never going to be, it never was an economic rival and it never could have been. Um, but, but China. And it's in poor shape, yes. Um, but China is different in this respect and, you know, it's economically uh, a competitor, which is fine. I don't think we should be worried about economic competition. Um, I think what we do worry about is economic competition that's, that's foul rather than fair, um, you know, where, where rules are kind of biased. Uh, and where actually China, you know, I mean, it's, it's not a sort of a revolutionary power to use the sort of IR term. It doesn't want to kind of destroy the system and rebuild it. It wants to remold it <coughs> and uh, have it work more to reflect China's interests. In standards and systems, and uh, you know, tech, technology—the the way in which it administers technology, data privacy, and usage of data, and so on and so forth—I mean, these things are going to become, the what well, they are already—I mean, extremely sensitive um, matters on which we will find it very difficult to to align our interests. You
0: know. so, uh, regarding um, that sort of influence operation. Um, how I mean to what degree do you think there is now a problem in terms of western I, I mean is it fair to say that western institutions have been infiltrated by Chinese uh, agents or you know or influences who are trying to help us self-sabotage and, and, and forward Chinese ag- agendas I mean is, is it as bad as that
1: um
0: can which which institutions
1: are more vulnerable to that yeah the seeking to influence people and governments is something that we all do right i mean the brits do it the americans do it the germans do it um you know the japanese do it and so on So, using your diplomatic channels using your you know influence abroad to try to sort of peddle your narrative and get people to fall in line with that I mean it's something which is you know it's not unique to China we all do it what's probably changed in or come to light I would say in recent years is that what China also seems to be doing is interfering in people's political and educational systems in ways that may not always meet standards of legality Um, so the funding of politicians um uh, i mean this is a big issue in australia or has been a big issue in australia Um, and uh, but we also have uh, you know examples of it here in the united states and in europe uh, where educational institutions um have um had a purpose that's not just providing Chinese language education and you know education about China but actually to keep to spy on Chinese communities to spy on Chinese students to um, uh, sort of influence the uh, campaigning and narratives propagated by local politicians and companies um, and uh, yeah I mean I think it's um, I mean in this country, uh, you know the um, uh, I think it's called the China Research Group, which is sort of the, um, the sort of the Tory Party's European Research Group with a different flag. Um, uh, but actually, not not partly unfair well, actually there are some uh, you know what shall I say some uh, uh, thoughtful people who, who actually know a little bit about China and who are actually quite active in it. And I think you know they're trying to bring to light. Um, Institutions like that, plus um, other kind of China experts, um, what they believe to be, you know, instances where China's activities need to be investigated because we shouldn't, you know, we're not allowed to do things like that in China, and we may want to ask whether it's legitimate and right uh, for Chinese state agencies and party agencies um, to have kind of free reign to, you know act in their own interest in the way that they do or alleged to be doing in, in our country, in our governments and societies. So, so yeah, it has become more of a problem and, it, and it's, it's kind of it's kind of squeezed this kind of sentiment shift that's been going on um, quite clearly according to Pew surveys and another in, uh, public opinion surveys done globally this kind of shift in sentiment against China is quite ubiquitous
0: do you think though China allied with Russia and India as a kind of power block can we can can we compete with that China on its own is one thing but yeah. if it's aligned with if India currently is kind of in the middle it's it's not it's not put all its eggs in one basket yet, but it's certainly being more neutral than the other areas, right? I and India is kind of a key inflection.
1: It is, and um, in fact, I, I wouldn't want India together with China um, at all, actually. In fact,
0: but there is a there's an adversarial relationship.
1: There is, yeah.
0: But it's a kind of enemy's enemy friend thing because at the moment they're obviously still taking Russian oil and um, an, there is undoubtedly an adversarial relationship I Mm -hmm. mean India if you watch Indian uh, um, media and I I do because I I don't know if you've come across Weon it's their kind of RT equivalent whatever the you know national broadcasting English I really enjoy it because you get a completely different perspective they're
1: very argumentative
0: they are they are argumentative but they are also um, very matter of fact but in terms of China they're like it's clearly biased against China it's very it's to me that's how it comes across, um, and yet because of the Russian sort of open-mindedness towards Russia, and then obviously China being open-minded, there's a sort
1: of enemy's enemy. To it. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, I think obviously the Indians have been kind of fiercely independent for since independence, um, and um, uh, you know, leading nation of the Non-Aligned Movement, as we used to call them, um, and obviously there was a bit of a sort of a brouhaha about you know. Uh, the sort of reliance on russia for arms and so on i'm i i do not know i mean the future i think is about who can win india over or at least um, appeal for india to align its interests more often than not with their own and so india's
0: the West still has a good
1: chance. I think so because, I mean, India. I mean, even obviously,
0: previously British. Yeah, know, empire, yeah um, I mean, um, obviously, uh,
1: there are kind of qualms about Modi's version of democracy, but you know, it is a democracy still, even if not a very, even if it's not as liberal as it used to be. Um, and I think India's membership of the so-called quadrilateral alliance, which is the United States, India, Japan, and Australia. Um, is an important uh, part of whatever America's Indo-Pacific strategy in the future is going to look like, um, and um, I, I'm pretty sure that the you know American, well, the State Department's objective is to try to wean India off its reliance on Russian. Uh, energy and arms um, one of its
0: main refiners is obviously called reliance so that's (laughs) just a bad joke yeah Um, but yeah no no no, I I, I can see that but okay so in terms of like now where we are now um oh and actually oh I'm actually quite full now do you want no mm -hmm? I'm
1: I'm pretty much done actually okay
0: um what's the demographic situation in India
1: um well, they are the kind of demographic darling, if you want to put it that way, in the sense that um, you know, their, their working age population, aged 15 to 64, is going to grow in the next 25 years by as much as the entire stock of working adults in Europe, wow. East and West so they have a lot of a lot of young people i mean so the the so-called demographic dividend which china exploited so well is definitely passing to india and obviously the the trick for india is to create jobs for these people otherwise you know they could find themselves in a lot of trouble
0: and what about
1: which is why by the way It's interesting to sort of tie this up with decoupling and supply chain diversification. I mean, quite recently, I think Apple and Samsung both announced that they were looking at India as uh, new manufacturing facilities for some of their products, not their kind of principal products in China. But I think Apple said it might be outsourcing its its AirPod uh, production to India. Um, So it's quite interesting to see if, India can take some of the manufacturing because manufacturing is really and and retail are really the kind of two labour intensive sectors that they really need to develop. I mean I
0: don't know if you watch um kind of agricultural side, but like is India how is India positioned um in like if we have a constraint on like fertilizer and you know obviously the green revolution was all about India to some degree and yes it's great if you have a big population but if you can't feed them that's not good either right um, so in the current dynamic we've, we've effectively fertiliser under pressure on the market um, what is, and you see what has happened in Sri Lanka now where has been an agricultural disaster, mainly because, from what I understand, policy, bad policy from the government on the government level, trying to restructure the agricultural sector into feeding more organic uh, demand, um, which tends to descales the system and actually ends up... It hasn't helped, right? Yields have fallen. But do you think India, um, agriculturally, is going to be okay? Or what's... Do you watch, and if you
1: don't watch that area, don't Yeah, I don't look at it very carefully, I mean, or very intensively. Um, I mean, it's gratifying in a way that India hasn't been one of the countries that's been at the top of people's lists, um, uh, like Egypt or um, Sri Lanka or others that are so reliant on, on wheat imports. I think, um, I, mean, I, I think India has made strides to, quite important strides in many crops towards uh, self-sufficiency, but. Uh, not my, not my bailiwick, really.
0: I think they had a bad drought, um, but anyway. Um, Can happen. Moving to your other specialisation, demographics. Before we revisit the UN, Elon Musk is going around sort of saying um, that you know, in the face of like green policy, everybody's like not very keen to have children because like you don't want to have a car like children are a carbon footprint and then Elon Musk comes on like a few months ago and starts saying well actually no the birth rate is terrible we should all be like Westerners should all be having more children did you Did you see that?
2: I didn't see that
0: no. yeah so he's he's suddenly come out and said we've got the whole population perspective demographic in the perspective in the West all wrong we shouldn't be having less children we should be having more children he's got like I think seven <laughs> so he's like I'm the exception I'm a billionaire with seven children but usually the wealthier you get the fewer children you get um, and he's doing this kind of like you know he's legions and legions of like fans mm. who he can influence I find that very interesting that there is this like western capitalist champion boarding a of population growth strategy.
1: Interesting. I mean, he's was it going to run up against the sort of green lobby um, pretty quickly? If he does. Well, exactly. So, how do you how
0: do you square that? How do you square the demographic problem with the green um, agenda?
1: Yeah, I mean, so the I mean, the the ubiquitous decline in fertility, with the exception of really really poor countries or those with you know wars going on or uh, terribly poor at all. Um, I mean, it, it's a global phenomenon. It's, you know, it's not just a sort of Germany, you know, France, Korea kind of issue. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think it's about, I think it's about per capita income, which is probably the most effective contraceptive we've ever had. Because you know, as people get uh, better off, I mean, they tend to have fewer children. And their lifestyles change to the point where... Um, you know people um, uh, Well, they may not want large families or in fact any families the interesting thing though is that one of the perverse things that's happened in the kind of demographics world is that the countries that have maintained the higher fertility rates or where women are more inclined to have children tend to be those countries where childcare facilities are best yeah. Uh, cheaper, more available. Um, you know, take your kid into work, leave them at the gate in the nursery, go off to work, pick them up in the evening. Um, so <clears throat> it, it's not impossible to reverse the decline in fertility, actually. Um, but I think to do that, um, I mean, we know that cash doesn't really work. I mean, the kind of You know, financial incentives that women or families have been given, you know, from Mexico to, you know, Malaysia or wherever. I mean, they don't really, they might have kind of a short-term effect, but they don't really work. In China, they've been counselling people in large urban centres to have more children, two, three, maybe even more children. That doesn't seem to work very well either. And
0: that is an amazing, amazing switch in mentality.
1: It is huge, yeah, yeah. Um,
0: Presumably, you've grown up like because the only only children will be now how old? Like from like they'll be in in the in their twenties, right? So those that they're coming into kind of power positions, as someone said, like a lot of Chinese um, like younger leaders are now going to be from the only only children households yeah. so potentially not very good at sharing <laughs> and all the sort of other stuff. Happens. Yeah,
1: these are so what, what the demographers call <laughs> pole families, yeah. right, where single children grow up without cousins and siblings um, and... um it
0: become a bit, like, from a behavioural point of view, <clears throat> it might have implications, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it might. Uh, but
0: now they're suddenly going from that to an environment where they're encouraging lots of children. It's an extraordinary about turn.
1: Yeah, I mean, i think the it, it is an extraordinary about it and the fact that it's that it's you know that it's not just kind of the oecd countries that are experiencing it but actually that it's you know throughout africa latin america i mean they're obviously at a different level because they're coming at this later um but actually uh, but the same trends in global fertility are, are taking place i mean the, uh, the United Nations population division, which is kind of one of the font, one of the you know, sources of, of, of wisdom of data about population uh, uh, and demographics. I think they think that, you know, by... I mean, they, they have a kind of a central projection, which is that by the middle of the century, that the average fertility rate will have come back to around 1. 1.6, 1. something like that. But actually, they have a low variant where it never really recovers.
0: It's amazing. And why... Why do you think, I mean, I mean, obviously it's hard to, nobody knows, but like, um, do you think there's a climate change factor involved And in? like, do you think maybe in the West more so, like, do you think people do see it as a trade off?
1: I don't know. I have to talk to more young people. Yeah. Uh, I mean.
0: But economically, do you see it as a trade off? I, I think,
1: I think there is an economic problem, right? I mean, I think there's no question the pandemic basically we, I mean, we saw big fertility slump everywhere.
0: Which was everywhere, the opposite of you know? what people were expecting. is that Yeah. We were, oh, at home, nothing to do. We'll, we'll yeah. have a huge <laughs> baby yeah. boom. So, and it never happened. You no, know,
1: there was a big erosion in fertility during the pandemic. And obviously, uh, I mean, if you look at a number of, you know, look at the now cost of living crisis, energy crisis, um, you know, uh, threat of recession, rising unemployment. I mean, these things aren't exactly calculated to basically give people confidence about saying, let's have a bigger family, or let's have a, you know, family. I mean, obviously, <clears throat> people will continue to want to have children, but I think if you were contemplating a second child or a third child or a fourth child, you might put it off. I mean, I don't know, it's might, my might guess. Yeah. Especially when uh, social facilities or childcare facilities are being pared back, because that's absolutely key, I think. Uh, so
0: economically, though... Um, if we don't get back to replacement rates in the West we have to I was on a panel with Vince Cable and he was saying the West will have to just take more immigration which then opens up a political can of worms Um, and the immigration is also going to be um, under pressure like there will also be a pull because of climate change as well um and if the political perspective doesn't accommodate that, then either you're going to get hardship because of the democratic decline and cost of living, which is especially for, presumably cost of living will go up, because you won't have enough labour, or you end up with, um, with well, I, I, I mean what, what, uh, yeah. I'm muttering because no. Vince's point was eventually even if it's unpopular you're going to have to force immigration into the country to, to do the replacement right
1: I'm not sure about that I mean it is a political can of worms and we don't know that in 20 years time it'll still be the same political can of worms but as the kids say nowadays it is what it is and so we have to accept that it's very difficult to use um, this particular route of, of migrant workers, more immigration, because it's being resisted in so many places. But in a sense, I think that Vince Cable was wrong about this because unless you have already, uh, it, it kind of de- whether it's a useful tool depends on your um, the, the underlying fertility in the country and what your labour force projections look like. So, for example, in countries that have relatively higher fertility rates, like the UK, um, Australia, Canada, the United States, the projected shift in the working age population over the next 20 or 30 years, I mean, it's meaningful, but it's not so awful or dramatic that it couldn't be helped by... A higher, slightly higher levels of immigration maybe not dramatically higher but in a lot of countries the level of immigration that would be required
2: it's just, level.
1: it's just don't even think about it, it's just not going to happen uh, you know, for example I mean, they started to become a little bit more um, accommodative about immigration in Japan, actually. but it's from a very, very low base and it's really not going to make that much difference. So, you know, there are only three coping mechanisms that you can deal with the consequences of not having enough children. Import the labor, which is immigration. Women and oldest people tend to be underrepresented at work, so you could make it more attractive or um, uh, appealing for people to either come back to work or or stay in work. And productivity. So if you could switch on a productivity bulb, um, you know, from one day to the next, all problems solved. But obviously, we can't do that. We have to do. Yeah. What
0: is your view then on productivity? Because I was actually just uh, thinking about that. Today, because I read a piece in the Sunday Times arguing that a um, stagflationary environment might actually be good for productivity.
1: Yeah, actually, I'm—I mean, abstracting from the current and prospective, you know, economic environment, I'm actually not that bearish about productivity, and I don't really know why. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just think it's—I just think that it would be extraordinary if we are. if if what we're experiencing in technology is as dramatic as we think it is and if it's going to become if it's going to if, if technology is going to go from the you know page 15 of the newspaper to page one and you know it's going to go from the the creators of technology to the boring bits of the economy and retail and transportation distribution wholesaling then we will see productivity enhancement in years to come but it's very hard to say in you know sitting here in sort of july, june july 2022 you know this is going to come it's all going to fall into place within the next one to two years because i don't really know that it will um, i suspect that it will come
0: What's your preferred um, explanation for why productivity has been suffering
1: for so long? Uh, well, I think that um, one—I mean, in no order of order—overinflated uh-huh. um, expectations, like it was all going to happen quickly, and it hasn't really happened. Anymore. In other words, the diffusion of technology from the—you the, know—the creators of tech and um, to. As I said, the boring bits of the economy—that's really where you get your kind of productivity bonus from. So the
0: deployment hasn't fully penetrated yet. Yeah. Um,
1: The second reason I think is maybe um, regulation, and uh, and I think a lot of this has to do with what happened after the financial crisis. Um, So there are a lot of—I mean—there is a lot of red tape. There's a lot of regulations being put into place a lot of uh, kind of compliance um, I mean, i'm not saying these things are wrong yeah well that's the thing is we have to learn to yeah i mean i'm not saying that we shouldn't have done it i'm just saying that in 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 some areas like in finance and in technology where um, we you know we've reacted in certain ways because we think we need to and have to um, but there has been a price to pay which is you know a decline in productivity
0: so but, the, this is where it becomes a little bit viciously because if technology then like gets around those regulations to make it more efficient again, then the regu- regulations become non-effective, <laughs> effectively, which then opens up the same can of worms that you had before the regulations were in place. So because a lot of like oh, so much technology is now focused on you know uh, reg tech as yeah. they would call it, oh, or yeah. dealing with compliance or, you know, um, getting around those regulations, it it all feels to me a bit like, um, missing the point, because the regulation's there to slow the system down, because if we don't slow it down, humans make bad decisions, and, um, allocate capital badly, or open, expose ourselves to predatory, you know, know, zero-sum or negative-sum exploitation of capital, whatever, um... Regulation comes in and protects everything, but there's a cost to that. And then the
1: incentive—it's just like a merry-go-round. It and is. Then it is. So, so it's, it's as well not to get overly hung up on regulation. I, I was just saying. Oh, no, no, of course. You yeah. know, so, so overinflated expectations. Regulation has had an impact. You know, that can change too. Um, but I think you know, ultimately, what we really want is we, we want to spark you know the sort of innovation, right? As innovation investment will lead to more productivity growth in the future. And um, in in some, I mean, it is hopeful that, for example, in the United States, I mean, the investment side of the economy has been doing actually pretty well. Um, not so much here, and so. The, Is that
0: because we're so service-oriented?
1: Uh, not necessarily. I mean, I don't think, don't think it's all about investment in manufacturing. You know, you can have you can have you know more product more productivity in service-producing industries too. But if the if the economic climate, I mean, in, you know, we're talking today uh, in the wake of the kind of recent resignations of the government, which seems to be in. Um, it's floundering to do anything um, I mean it, it's not a great environment for companies to invest in the future um, and I think that's I mean ultimately that's kind of where our productivity you know, can only come from from being more efficient and astute in investment and the, you know our governments in the past you know have not been particularly brilliant for, um, nurturing of, of that phenomenon.
0: Is there also like in the, um, I forgot the name of The uh, Economist now, who wrote that amazing book about productivity um, it, well, it's, the name escapes me, but um, is it also the question that like that all the low hanging fruit has been We've taken? done it all. We've done it all. Like, yes. we like, we're here in a restaurant, like how much more innovation can like make this restaurant more productive I mean there isn't that much more you can do like the washing machine came in probably displaced a few uh, washer uppers the chef you know you could maybe get a chef displaced here or there with some more efficient cooking assembly line but by, and then you do have that you, we've got like you know um, McDonald's for that right but there isn't like if you there are certain industries like hospitality
1: where you can't really add productivity Yeah, I, to be honest Izzy yeah, I, I mean I've not done this as a sort of exercise myself but maybe this will spur me to, to doing it but <clears throat> it'd be interesting to know <clears throat> what kinds of occupations and what percentage of jobs that people do today nobody had a clue about 15 to 20 years ago yes
0: that would be a very good, like social media manager
1: or app designing or yeah. uh, you know any of the kind of things that people with-
0: moderate online forum moderators. <laughs> I mean, so podcasts. So, so when
1: you, so <laughs> I think I, I can't remember the name of the economist either. I mean, he obviously put a lot of work into this and said, well, you know, once you can fly a plane at this speed, you know, it's not going to get if you make, if you take ten minutes off the journey, it's not going to make any difference. All of that is fine, but that's just extrapolating what we know into the future as though. You know the process of invention and innovation is going to cease, but we know that's not going to happen. We know that you know there are going to be new industries, there are going to be new sectors. What happens if the electric vehicle or the you know driverless vehicle um, kind of revolution really begins to um, kind of kick off in the next kind of 20 years? We're going to have we we will need a complete new infrastructure to deal with it. You know, in the same way that we we had no infrastructure to deal with the internal combustion engine when it was in you know the Model T 4 uh so I, I mean I, I'm just optimistic that, you know, in the future we will you know the productivity problem will be resolved. And maybe it needs maybe hard times are the times when people really Well uh, they do say to that things happen.
0: necessity is the mother of invention. invention yeah. So I, I agree. I think like now might be the time where Technology and innovation, might my, my, my sentiment is simply that like, innovation can be good or bad. And the criminals are very innovative, but they don't really add to the economy, right? So it's about where you direct innovation that matters as much as uh, innovation itself. And in a necessity uh, environment, there's going to be a better pull for innovation to be um, Focused on actual problem resolution, than say in a more you know passive. Well, in a kind of um, comfortable environment where really it's more potentially focused on predatory activity and, and maybe even um, like you know financial. A lot of a lot of innovation has happened in fintech. Speaking of which, you know, crypto being one of them, but is crypto really a positive sum? I mean, I know you don't look at it specifically, but what's your general
1: view on crypto? It, yeah, it's sort of passed me by a little bit. Um, um, maybe just... You so you know, don't
0: own a load of Bitcoin?
1: No, I don't. And maybe that maybe that's why I'm feeling so sore about it. Because uh, I, you know, maybe I would have got out in time. But, um, <laughs> but um, no, I don't know. I was... <clears throat> I've been... Uh, I mean, I've been kind of looking at it from afar. And um, I'm... I'm um, I was reading recently, the, um, as nerds do, um, the annual report of the Bank for International Settlements. As you do. As you do. Well, as nerds do. <laughs> um, but they usually... It was it
0: like had a big chapter. I, I read it, so yeah. I know there's oh, right, like right. a big Well, okay. I Well, I like,
1: I like looking yeah. at their work because they're a very thoughtful group and they're very clever. Um, but I think um, I was kind of pi- quite persuaded by the idea about... Um, well, I've been sort of intuitively persuaded by the idea that it's you know something that was born out of quantitative easing and low interest rates Um, and um, you know not coincidentally has kind of run up against a brick wall when all of this is starting to change Um, so I kind of always felt it was really kind of a source of speculation but I was kind of quite persuaded by the idea that they BIS argued that money is fundamentally a public good And uh, what we what we don't really want, and what we shouldn't really kind of uh, sort of give any kind of nurturing to, is the idea that it can be privately owned and compartmentalised and you know decentralised and so on. Because actually, that way, um, you know, the the function of money. I mean, it may be very useful if you want to hide your transactions or for you know, you you don't want anybody to know what you're doing. Um, But um, I'm not sure that's something that is something that we should uh, support So but what do
0: you think of the um, uh, sorry to interrupt uh, you might have been making this point um, how do you think China fits with its kind of approach to
1: CBDCs. And oh, Yuan. Okay, so that's different, right? So, the, so that's a
0: public. Like you would yeah. argue, we're providing a public. Good. Yeah,
1: and I think I think centrally central bank digital currencies. I mean, I, I can't see uh, that's an unstoppable trend in my view. Um, I mean, I don't. I think the BIS said there are probably ninety central banks in the process of either developing or testing or investigating or something. Um, that, that's definitely coming. That's coming down the track. And, and so the digitalization of money is without question, uh, you know, where we're we going.
0: But do you think, like, so I guess the concern with, like, a country like China rolling out CBDC is that when money, money becomes programmable, it means that suddenly the neutrality of money disappears. And, like, fundamentally as an economist, you know, the principle is that money is neutral and price, prices dictate, you know, if there's the variance in the economy is dictate, you know, uh, influence my price changes of different goods and supply and time, right? But if money is no longer neutral, it's no longer the, clear, the neutral clearing system for everything then prices become a bit weird, right? Because you can't, price relatively speaking, all the same things. so in, in the worst case scenario it's a social credit idea where like well your are credit, you're George and you've been a good citizen and so you can come and have all this lunch My credits, because I've been like I've done something to upset the regime. Even though technically we have the same amount of credits, I can't spend them on like half the nice stuff on the menu.
1: So, so when you say that it wouldn't be neutral under central bank issuance, well,
0: it depends how like if you make the money programmable so that it's not just how much money you have, but how you're entitled to spend it. So, like, unless you've been a good citizen, unless you've, you know, so you might have 10,000 credits, but if you, like, upset the, you know, the regime, they'll say, well, you can spend anything apart from train travel because we don't want you, like, leaving. Right.
1: Well, know. of course, yes. I mean, that that's a sort of... Um, that takes us into a... Kind of a an area of abuse, you know. I mean, obviously, we don't really, we would not want to think that um, that central central bank issued digital currencies would be, you know, abusable in that way. I mean, it would issue the digital currency to banks. We would get them the money from banks, I presume that's kind of a, how the sequencing would work. Um, and um, yeah, the, that neutrality should be preserved. Um, one would hope. One would hope. But, but we yeah. would, temptation
0: to use it for data mining
1: sure we want massive. to make sure the central banks don't replicate our fears of big tech because we, we worry that they would
0: exactly and it, it's fine if you're in a democracy but if you've got Russia emulating um, exactly that as well which they are yeah then you've got potentially not just money under the control of the government, but all the personal data to do with how you spend the money, um, which is incredibly powerful for... for if, if you are, you know, you're not to be trusted as a government, that is, you know... Yeah, so I wouldn't want the Stasi to have it, <laughs>
1: you know? So my response to that is, well, kind of, for, for those, you know, for the argument that is about, well, the EUA is going to be... <laughs> world leader you know we'll all be having accounts in the yuan i think let's hold your horses
0: right because why would you want to settle anything in the yuan if the chinese government yeah. is using that to track how you spend your money exactly
1: i mean a i think it's an irrelevance to the to the the, the basic notion about whether the renminbi or the yuan will be more widely used i mean you know we E-currencies, digital currencies, about payments mechanisms. They're not really about store of value. People doubt or have reservations about its use as a payment because somebody will be prying into your personal history or what you do with your money. And I think it's a, it's a put off, right? I mean, we won't we won't necessarily like to do that. Um, so on, on both counts, I mean, I, I don't doubt the Chinese are you know going to to press this hard, as they are continuing to do, um, and will roll out, uh, you know, initiatives and experiments in China, you know, in, in the next couple of years and so on, almost inevitably. Um, but how far it'll go to be, you know, kind of a globally recognised, globally used, let's let's wait and see. Yeah, I would
0: agree. What well, about in terms of the Belt and the Road, though? because there's obviously now this other narrative about how China is purposefully um isolating you know impoverished states giving them loans they know they can't pay back like almost because it's a lap, it's an asset grab like the expectation is will we'll debt capture you um and you know to that you know there's a reason why the west isn't making the same scale of loans to some of these countries um is that also
1: something to watch for? It's it's changing. So this, uh, I mean, I'm, I can remember still from about two or three years ago, there was sort of you know kind of competition amongst financial institutions. How big will the Belt and Road program be? You know, it was anything from between you know two or three trillion dollars to ten trillion dollars, and, and actually most of the lending for infrastructure in the Belt and Road is ground to a halt. Really? Yeah. Because, um, so, in the first place, the bulk of the Belt and Road financial programs were loans, not uh, uh, direct investments. Okay. So they made loans, or the Chinese development banks made loans to Sri Lanka or Kenya or Tanzania or, you know, Brazil or whatever it happened to be. And um, and these loans were then used um, either to employ Chinese companies and or others to build the stuff that um, they wanted to build um, rather than direct equity participation by Chinese companies. Um, But actually, because the Chinese banks have had such bad experiences with loans, uh, not least Venezuela and Sri Lanka, but lots of other cases as well, um, and because of the pandemic and because of the greater scrutiny by the government over capital outflows from China, um, the the, the direct lending under the Belt and Road initiative has pretty much ground to a a trickle. But it's not to say that it's kind of fallen out of use because the, the Belt and Road is still Xi Jinping's kind of signature foreign policy. But instead, they're kind of focusing on like the health Silk Road, right? Which is to create public health dependencies or relations with Chinese providers, vaccines, you know, PPE equipment, uh, public health facilities. Yeah. So there's the health Silk Road, there's the digital Silk Road, where companies like Huawei and other telecoms and technology providers build uh, network infrastructure. Uh, phone systems um, uh, introduce technolo- Chinese technology standards into those countries, which may be at variance from those which, you know, uh, Intel or you know IBM or you know Google would, would want to uh, propagate. Um, so there's a health Silk Road, there's a digital Silk Road, the Polar Silk Road, which is um, China's attempt to basically take advantage of the warming of the Arctic to build to go fishing to go you know digging for undersea raw oh, materials that's
0: yeah so they see they're trying to get like an opportunity as they say in China every crisis is an opportunity yeah so the global warming they're looking at the, um, the the flooring as a opportunity to fish and um, extract resources
1: yeah and find yes. a, a you know a shorter route to the west basically yeah. Through the Arctic, but of course that's going to bring them into conflict at some stage with <laughs> Russia.
0: Their new best buddy. <laughs> Their new best buddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Deep friendship. Yeah. A deep friendship. Yeah. Um,
0: we're coming up to like the end of uh, the hour, so um, probably gone over now. But um, I wanted to ask you about Taiwan. Like, we've at the risk of being thrown out of the restaurant, I think it's, <laughs> it's okay. We uh, are in London, um, and it is Cantonese, so. Um, What do you you think, what's what's your take on the Taiwan issue?
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, The the dark side is that uh, Xi Jinping certainly wants to have it as his legacy that what the Communist Party calls the renegade province is quote reunited brackets, was it ever united close brackets um, with the motherland. So, yeah, since um, uh, Taiwanese politics are definitely have moved further uh, and are moving further and further away from uh, any kind of voluntary change to accommodate China, the logic suggests that the Chinese really only have uh, other than patience, uh, which may not be, you know, which may be exhaustible, um, that their only other option is basically is to bully the Taiwanese and frighten them into uh, unifying or to eventually use cyber attacks or military attacks to force the issue. Um, The question really is, I suppose, is whether China would want to risk what would almost certainly be military conflict with the United States in doing that. Um, I mean, we talked... I
0: mean, yeah, because I think from, from, um, from um, my perspective, like, what is the upside of getting Taiwan?
1: I suppose it, the upside is it's it's the political narrative for the Communist Party, which is...
0: But that's it, quite a lot of risk for a narrative.
1: It, it is. But, and you might say that, you know, basically occupying Tibet and uh, basically introducing the national security law in Hong Kong, But these were not huge gambles. You know, they were, they were always going to work. Um, whereas with Taiwan, it's different. It's an island. It's not contiguous land border. Um, uh, you know, spirited local resistance might be spirited. Um, the Taiwanese, you know, semiconductor factories, they could scorched earth them. You know in order to not to let the Chinese happen, I mean, all sorts of terrible that things. I happen. never thought
0: of like Saddam oil well style, yeah.
1: I mean, obviously, TSML, you know, world leader
0: that would be. I never thought of a sport chef policy on that, but um, okay, so facing but, those challenges, what is the upside?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the upside is, I mean, I suppose if. we could create all sorts of kind of scenarios right let's imagine for one moment that uh, you know Donald Trump is back in the White House um, and that um, you know uh, he becomes even more isolationist than before and um, you know basically reaches some kind of transactional deal with China like you can have Taiwan The quid pro quo would be something, whatever it might be. I guess what I'm trying to say is that if the Chinese ever felt that a window had been presented where they could effectively coerce and force the issue of Taiwanese unification with no cost or little cost um, militarily, I I think that's something they might seize to do. so you
0: see it more as a tool. Like, a, like effectively they see it as leverage and not leverage because obviously but like they could they could say well we'll give you know hypothetically the west goes bankrupt only china can bail out the west they're like okay we'll do that but <laughs> the cost is taiwan like um, that sort of thing
1: that sort of thing i mean i mean if they I suppose if, they, if the if the sort of leadership in Beijing felt that you know that the West really was, or the United States was a paper tiger, they just wouldn't they wouldn't move to uh, interfere over the coercion of, uh, of the unification of Taiwan. I, I think that's that's it's, that would be a moment
2: that,
0: of
1: maximum risk because the Chinese. Why wouldn't they take advantage of that? um but I think that's think the
0: Taiwanese would um, fight
1: I think they would try uh, I mean it's a country of 25 million people they've got you know they've got modern weaponry uh, whether they I, I can't vouch for how well trained they are I don't know um would they feel as vehemently about their own territory as the ukrainians about theirs the answer is almost certainly they would um but actually if if they were you know if the united states or you know the quad and australia if they if they didn't want to they didn't want to play then um it's hard to see how the taiwanese could resist china there. so i think this, this is why i think that the, the kind of russia's experience actually is quite instructive really because the, i think the chinese were shocked by the speed and cohesion with which the West came together to ostracise and make Russia a pariah. Much more complicated in China's case.
0: And we can't really sanction China to the same degree, can we? Depends how much price,
1: you know, what price we're prepared to pay. I mean, we could. I mean, Chinese depend on... If you think about the West as being America, you know, South Korea, Japan, the Netherlands, I mean, all the kind of Countries that contribute to the importation of semicon—I mean, the Chinese spent more money on semiconductors last year than they did on imported energy. Um, So they are, right? Sorry, including Taiwan. But I'm just saying that the Chinese dependence on imported components to make semiconductors, including the most advanced semiconductors, which they can't make yet. Um, is such that they only make about twenty percent of their demand for semiconductors, and most of those are low-end uh, um, spec- uh, specification. So, if uh, I mean, it would it would be terribly costly to everybody. No, there would be no winners. But actually, you could, if you if you did sanction China on some of the most sensitive technologies that they are highly dependent on. I mean. It would hurt, a lot.
0: That's interesting. That's worth um, definitely delving into. Cause I, I, I was under the impression, because 90% of semiconductors produced in Taiwan, that in any kind of face-off with the West, Taiwan wouldn't be able to... like, like chi- China would grab Taiwan and then be relatively protected from any semiconductor squeeze?
1: Uh, I mean, I think ideally they would want yeah, (laughs) they'd want to take over Taiwan and take over the semiconductor you know, fabs uh, and manufacturing uh, uh, capacity, lock, stock and barrel Um, things might not work out like that
0: Yes, that's the question whether they'd actually be able to do it. Yeah.
1: You
0: you mentioned years ago that you have one of these vintage Chinese bonds from the imperial I'd, ones from, do. <laughs> so that's from um, speaking of like I wrote this piece ages ago because there was this interesting like dilemma whether those bonds might ever ever come back into play. Because obviously they, they were defaulted on by the by the old imperial regime. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party didn't recognise them as, as valid, but in theory they're still in play. Yeah, and there is this like woman in um, in America who's been collecting them all up, and she even like she has millions in them. And of course she she claims that with the interest differential, you know, they're worth about current like whatever China owns in in, in. she's worked it out the global circulation of those vintage bonds roughly equivalent to the to the amount of treasuries that China owns if you account for the interest I don't know how true that is or not um, it's
1: very decorative and very colourful on my wall but
0: (laughs) which one is
1: it (laughs) it's a railway bond I can't remember the exact details of that but they are
0: they are are infamously bearer bonds right yeah um, and when I was researching it I did find Out that Margaret Thatcher did do this like brief um, when they were negotiating just before they negotiated Hong Kong. I think China wanted access to the UK markets, and one of the deals they did was that China would have to pay off a bit of this debt. So they did, there was an advert, I found it, I tracked it down in the FT. Where there was a, um, a classified uh, note saying, if you have these bonds, there's going to be a period of like however many weeks, you can take them to this place and they'll be paid back. <laughs> so the UK debt has been, as a result, squared off. But um, anyway, <laughs> it's interesting. So just to finishing the things off, we were going to talk about like the afterlife of, of chief chief economists. <laughs> like, what do they do after they leave their uh, their position in uh, global institutions? Yeah. But um, is there what else is on
1: your on your mind at the moment that, uh, that you'd love to throw into the mix? Yeah, no, I I, um, I spend a, I mean I spend pretty much all of my time on China. Really. I mean, obviously I'm I don't really I don't work for anybody anymore. So when people proposition me to come and you know write something or you know speak about something. I can kind of pick and choose, uh, you know, what looks interesting.
0: You're properly independent and neutral. Yeah,
1: yeah, I don't have, uh, I don't have, I mean, I think that's one of the kind of uh, things that I I kind of feel very pain, a little bit of pain about really, is how compromised my erstwhile colleagues or current, you know, clone colleagues are. Because um, there, there used to be a time where, you know, it was like, it was very creative. People told stories. You could pretty much say what you want. Sometimes it was a little bit close yeah. to the bone, uh, but it's got a bit dry, it has it? gone very dry. And I think, um, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't really get to see a lot of sell side research anymore, to be honest. But every now and again, I mean, I, I do see stuff. I mean, I, I still like the stuff that Goldman's put Jan Hatzius, I think, is quality acts, and I think Goldman still have very, very high standards, but. I, I can't really tell you who his competitors are anymore. Um, and I think that um, if they're in China, they can't really say anything anymore. I mean, I, I had a terrible, report. it wasn't terrible. It was a bad experience in Shanghai before the pandemic in 2019. Uh, I was due to make, speak at a public event in, um, uh, one evening. And um, on my way to the event, uh, I got a phone call from the journalist at Bloomberg who was organizing the event and uh, he told me not to come because the, the owner of the venue had had uh, visits that afternoon from the local police and the security police wanting to know who was talking, what were they talking about and who was coming.
2: You! Yeah,
1: <laughs> basically. Wanted! <laughs> uh, so that, that wasn't, it was, it was for a public event I have to say, not for private events. Um, But it was a sort of a foretaste of the the nature of the repression and the the clampdown on what you're allowed to say, even for foreigners, which has become prevalent, I think, in China since then. Uh, So I think it must be quite hard to practice, you know, the dark arts of economics in China nowadays, other than doing just boring data-driven work.
0: And presumably, even if you're not in China, you're still under pressure because you have colleagues in China.
1: Yeah, that could be the case too. Uh, absolutely. I mean, if you want to eventually to travel to China once they get over their zero COVID uh, obsession, uh, you just, you have to behave, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not doing anything. Not you know, get into the kind of bad books.
0: And just to finish off, um, what's your view (coughs) on inflation? Did you see it coming? Did you expect
1: it? I think it was, well, I'm not saying that. Were you
0: in team transit?
1: No, no. I think when it when that debate started, I was always I think I definitely was. uh, It's coming back. I mean, I I didn't have a strong view about whether it was going to go to 10% or, you know, more. But I did think, um, obviously, that I, I would have underestimated the bounce, the demand bounce back from the pandemic. Um, I was, I think I was probably cognizant of the supply chain problems, uh, and particularly those that are going to be with us for some time, even after Ukraine and all of that is kind of in the past. Um, I think the, the, the recalibration of supply chains and the localization or regionalization of production. Uh, I think these are trends which are going to stay. They're costlier, uh, some, will, some will go into margins, some will be passed on. So I think we will live. I mean, if we're going to go into a recession in the next year, you know, inflation will come down, easy peasy. Um, but I think we'll be left with a legacy which is higher inflation than we had in the past.
0: And who are you listening to? Who is, like, in the commentary at space, the Economist, who's who's called it right? Who's been, the you know, who do you think is worth listening to? Not the
1: Bank of England.
0: <laughs> keep hearing that for some reason. Yeah, um, Andrew Bailey, frankly, has been a bit of a disappointment. I think. Yeah,
1: I think, I mean, a lot of the central banks have been uh, slow. But uh, do you think that was run. intentional?
0: Because I keep saying, like... Either they're totally incompetent, or they had no reason to be flagging it because of the potential of making things worse by right? acknowledging it. So was there an element of like, we know it's coming, we say it's coming, it will definitely come, so <laughs> maybe we just don't say anything uh, and tri- take one for the team? Tri-
1: yeah, tricky, isn't it? Because obviously, what I, I kind of understand in a way that the central banks, you know, will have been and probably still are quite uh, anxious about a wage-price spiral. Right? We don't want to go back to the 1970s. But the way to prevent that from happening is to make sure that you are in control of inflation at the very beginning. Because once, once it's really out of the bag, and it, I mean, expectations can be pretty sticky for a while even when we've got elevated inflation now I mean obviously people expect prices to be higher but you know I think it, it takes more than a year I think for for people's behaviour to, to really kind of uh, you know to, to radically change so I think there is still a window within which they can kind of contain inflation uh, relatively speaking but it's they have left it quite late I have to say
0: I mean, how much of it is now in the hands of the unions as well? I and mean, like all these general strikes that, like, like not general, there is a potential general strike atmosphere in the works, right? You've got the rail workers, the airline workers, the doctors, the teachers, like, I mean, that's general, we're getting it.
1: Yeah, uh, well, Yes, that's why, you know, I, when I say there's still time, there's, there's not much time, right? Because <laughs> um, you're listening to the new Chancellor of the Exchequer this morning, who was reminded of his promise to give teachers 5%. If 5% becomes the norm for the public sector, yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's a lot of extra money and that's going to fuel private sector wages, which is going to fuel public sector wages. And you could argue that by that time it becomes uh, becomes very late. Uh, and then. Consequences could be quite dire, so I think it's. I mean, it helps if you have grown-up government, which we don't have. Um, so I think we're very vulnerable to to well, losing a bit, um, losing control. So
0: obviously, the central bank has got it wrong, whether consciously or not, we don't know. But who who who's who's been like what, Larry Summers has, whether if you like him or not. He has been a bit, in a bit of an inflation trooper, as I uh, I would
1: call him. He was one of the early ones to speak out. Do you think it's, he's back in vogue as a result? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I see on Twitter that he's been getting quite a lot of bad press from some people <coughs> for sort of advocating sterner measures to suppress inflation. Obviously, you know, there's no surprise that you know that you know there is a trade-off between inflation and unemployment I mean however flat the Phillips curve is supposed to be we know that if you want to quell inflation there's going to be you know production's going to go down unemployment's going to go up it's going to be quite painful uh, we already have you know big fiscal reckonings and so on so yeah um, I hate-
0: 70s weren't all bad. There were flares and ABBA. Maybe we can <laughs> Oh, I think
1: that's pretty bad.
0: <laughs> I'm just trying to think like
1: what is the upside? <laughs> what
0: is the upside of the return? Do you think it will be is 70s the right paradigm to be comparing into? I, I
1: don't think so, actually. I oh, mean okay. I I mean I think, you know, I think in the 70s yeah, we okay. I mean, obviously the the, the it was triggered also at the beginning of the decade by this kind of huge surge, I mean, percentage-wise, much, much bigger than anything we've seen in oil and gas uh, this time around in oil prices and in commodity prices. Uh, and it was kept go- going in the early 70s by a very accommodative monetary prices. So, I and I think the politics were different then too, actually. So I I have a sense that it's, we you know i'm not sure that 70s is a good template the the 80s might prove to be a better template if the kind of the aftermath of the 81 82 session is anything to go by um, but maybe you know somewhere in between i well may, maybe there is no template <laughs> maybe we just have to we're just going to have to put up with you know higher rates of inflation that we've been accustomed to but maybe not damaging rates and not like Double digit for like years on end, um, but also a weaker labour market as well. It's certainly over the next couple of years, I would And then we just have to
0: wing it, yeah. I guess.
1: What we really need, I mean, we become obsessed in thinking that, you know, that income taxes, interest rates are the only policy tools that matter. But actually, if you really want to improve the performance of the economy. And productivity and living standards. I think we have to introduce. You know, I know it's a very cliché thing to talk about supply side policy. But, you know, we do need more competition. You know, we do need more why, why industrial policy. I know it's a dirty word. But why do you say it's a
0: dirty word? Like because it's Reaganistic?
1: Well, because I suppose. Uh, so it's yeah, it
0: it's X, the, the, the,
1: the, the Thatcherites and the Reaganites. Yeah. <laughs> I always think about you know the Laffer curve when people talk about supply side policies, but all they were interested really in, and are interested in today, is cutting taxes just because they politically think they want to cut taxes. Um, But I mean, supply side policies. I mean, you know, it's about you know improving the efficiency and the functionality of product markets, goods markets, services, um, labour markets, um, educational outcomes. Uh, I mean, just making the economy work better uh, through regulation or you know changes in regulation, investments, um, competition policy. I think. We need to give a, a lot more airtime to these kinds of issues. They take longer to work. You're not going to get results. You know, this
0: ties in with productivity. It does,
1: yes, exactly. And that, would,
0: well, that goes back to our original conversation that maybe this is an opportunity for productivity to come back into play. It,
1: if governments seize the moment, yes. yes. Um, I mean, what, what I think is worrisome is if all we're going to do is just do this kind of stop go kind of backwards and forwards between you know a couple of percentage points on interest rates and income tax rates and you're going up going down going up going down i mean it's not going to help anything at all Uh, so uh, there is an issue about efficiency and the economy's potential to deliver growth without constant artificial stimulus so
0: we're talking about to achieve that Presumably, we're talking about some sort of reallocation, like a restructuring of the
1: economy. I mean, to be blunt. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, certainly in the in the UK economy, we could certainly do with you know some sort of restructuring away from consumption spending, and you know putting a little bit extra into the investment side of the economy. If it's it's got to be productive investment, of course, not just you know investment for the sake of it.
0: I mean, is then the, the better parallel, maybe, like, collapse of the Soviet Union. Like, if you think about, you know, subsidies were a big problem in communist times. And that's kind of what's inadvertently, we've all been subsidized, like, through corporations and VCs. And, you know, the great era of, of QE has, has, like, been the era of the growth company that never made any profit, right? Which is a de facto consumer substitute, right? In effect, and they're monopolistic in nature, most of them. So, is there a kind of like it wasn't a state-based kind of uh, communist system, but it was like a corporatist one instead?
1: Uh, yeah, most certainly, uh, and I think that's kind of what happened. I mean, I don't know sort of the latest, kind of, you know, what the numbers specifically are, but I think over the last two or three years, I've read so many stories really about what a narrow universe of companies generates such a high proportion of profits and of market cap increase in, in global markets, um, which is a function really of the, you know, the the kind of, the narrowing of the kind of top of the pyramid in the corporate, stru- in the corporate structure and structure of corporations in the world. So we need to kind of, you know, I definitely think that competition is something that has suffered a lot um, as a consequence of, I don't know, vested interests, bad laws, uh, neglect. Um,
0: and also, I guess, fragmentation. Because um, the, mon- the big growth monopolies depend on globalised supply chains and blah, blah, blah. If that's being fragmented, then you can see them kind of breaking up a little bit and then maybe productivity finally comes into play because um, there'll be homegrown competition again. I think
1: that's kind of part of how it should work. I mean, it's, it's sort of, you know, we, we were talking before about de-globalization, you know, which well, I mean, obviously uh, the largest companies are the ones that have been the biggest globalizers, right? Because they globalize supply chains, small companies kind of fit into that. Um, but I mean, uh, bringing some of that production, say, back to Turkey or to Mexico or somewhere closer to home. I mean, it doesn't mean the kind of the, the, the death of globalization, um, even if it doesn't happen to be China-centric anymore. Um, and it actually has upsides, right? Because there are new investment opportunities. New companies could be participating in this. <coughs> it could spur. I mean, even in Britain, you know, if uh, I think you have to change the government to do this, but um,
0: I think we're
1: in the process. (laughs) We are in the process. Um, You know, I mean, even if um, (coughs) we rebuild some sort of, um, you know, uh, modus vivendi with the EU, doesn't have to be rejoining, but it could. uh, I mean, it could. It could restore some of the extraordinary losses that we've we've had in our trading performance and in in the uh, investment uh, environment, uh, which has happened since 2016-17. So, you know, I mean, obviously, as a Remainer, I would like the UK to get back into the EU, but it's not a kind of a make or break issue for me now. We can can reach an accord with the EU, which will deepen our commercial links, uh just takes a bit of goodwill and, yeah.
0: I think, uh, my colleague wrote a piece um, just arguing, there's such a differentiation between the EU on the internal kind of side versus the external perspective. And on the external side, its, it's in, global influence has never been stronger and you've got all sorts of countries wanting to align with it, from Ukraine, obviously, to, you know... Um, African states, you know, there's, there is this desire to be aligned with the EU, and then internally you've got this very precarious situation, but he was arguing that actually in a, in a world of fragmentation and deglobalization the EU, because it's kind of um, quite used to all that fragmentation, it's actually best suited, and he was saying it's like the re-emergence of the role of the um, early Roman Empire in that sense, and the, and the EU could take on that sort of role where its influence goes beyond its borders as well as its own.
1: And, um, Stranger things have happened. <laughs> <laughs>
0: On that cheery note, I'm going to say thank you, George, so much for, for joining me in, in Royal Terrain. It's been a real delight.
1: Thank and you I, so I, much. It's, uh, the food was great, the conversation was good. Yeah. Uh, it was great to see you.
0: That was Leaked Lunch with Isabella Kaminska, brought to you in association with Hire, the pseudonymous messaging app that won't share your personal information unless the law demands it. For more on what happens when finance and media intersect with reality, check out The BlindSpot at www.the-blindspot.com.